Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. And I see this issue come up over and over again, where jurors always have a question, well, why are they suing now? Right. You know, why now? And you don't want to leave questions unanswered, because if you leave the questions unanswered, some juror will come in and they'll answer the question for you, usually in a way that you don't like. Please rise, court is now in session. So this is the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, as always, this is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm, st- I'm still at my parents' house. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how, how these episodes will end up airing, but we've recorded one yesterday while I was at my parents' house. Right and now. I was going to leave. And I just, I mean, I just have it made right now. It's like, <laughs> it's like all the <laughs> yeah. stuff I didn't appreciate as a teenager. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, anyway, so I'm staying for another day. But Yeah, is your mom making breakfast for you? And so you just get up and breakfast, coffee, everything's already done? Yeah, I mean, I'm getting spoiled rotten. And I think like I'm especially getting spoiled because they've, you know, they've been quarantining and so have I. But so I think they're, they're um, it's nice for them to have somebody else around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's nice for me to be around people. So it's working out pretty well. Very nice. Probably nice to be out of the, out of the big city of Atlanta too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, uh, Yvonne, let's go ahead and introduce our guest today. Um, I want to welcome Brian McKean uh, from McKean and Associates based out of Detroit, Michigan. Uh, Brian is, a, uh, is the founding and senior partner of McKean and Associates, and you can look him up at McKeanAssociates.com. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are, how are things up in, uh, up in Detroit as far as, uh, as, far as the uh, coronavirus and, and quarantining? Well, sadly, as you've probably heard, we're one of the hot spots in the country. There have been a yeah. lot of people afflicted. Uh, our hospitals have been very, very busy. Yeah. I understand that things have improved slightly. Uh, our governor, I think, is doing the best she can to keep people sheltered in place. And uh, unfortunately, as you probably heard, we've had some demonstrators up in Lansing carrying AK-47s. Yeah. It's just nuts. But yeah. uh, the people who are choosing to stay home, I think are helping. We've got our staff working remotely at home and doing the best we can to keep our clients' uh, needs met. Yeah, I mean, that's that's all you can do right now. And, you know, at least we found that all of our clients uh, and even new clients have been pretty understanding and, and uh, been able to do a lot by by Zoom and, and phone and, and everything else. Yeah, and we've got a great staff, I'm really, fortunate that we've got a dedicated staff people are doing their best to get things done day in day out so we're we're not missing a beat very good well brian let me tell our listeners a little bit about you um and yvonne i was uh, i was just going to say that when i was looking up some of the cases that brian has worked on i was thinking you know we could do like a whole month worth of shows with uh with just brian because he, <laughs> he's definitely worked on some really fascinating cases absolutely um, but, uh, so Brian, as I said already, you, you, uh, founded, uh, McKean and Associates back in 2002. Since 2002, Yvonne, Brian, uh, and his firm have had the top verdict in Michigan in four separate years. 
and so have just worked, uh, done some tremendous work. Uh, Brian is a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates. He's been named as one of the top attorneys in Michigan, uh, named in 2012 by the New York Times. Uh, he's on the executive board of the uh, Michigan Association of Justice and for the American Association of Justice. Uh, and he chaired the professional negligence section and the birth trauma sections of uh, AAJ um, <clears throat> in 2006 through 2008. He's been named a, a super lawyer multiple times, been named uh, one of the top 100 lawyers in, in Michigan uh, multiple times. And uh, notably, and, and I, uh, some of these I knew, but some of them I had to look up. He, he has been involved in cases involving uh, uh, Farid Fata. Yasser Awad, John Verbovsky, and Larry Nasser, uh, and I'm just going to give a. I, I looked all these cases up, so we. I think most people know who Larry Nasser was, the the doctor at uh, Michigan State that was uh, uh, um, sexually molesting uh, numerous athletes, especially on the gymnastics team. Um, Fareed Fata was a uh, oncologist who was giving uh, chemotherapy to patients who didn't have cancer. And um, and I couldn't tell, but it, it sounded like it might have been your case, Brian, where they discovered that he was doing this, um, that, that sort of uncovered everything. Is that right? Exactly. It was a really strange twist of fate where my client had been told she had a recurrent stage four cancer. She was very emotionally upset. And uh, in her, you know, crying and, and, and uh, grief, she was stumbling around her bedroom and tripped over a suitcase and broke her leg. When she went to the emergency department and gave a history that she had multiple myeloma and they did an x-ray of her leg, you know, and, and did a little bit of workup, they said, you know, you don't have multiple myeloma. And that's how Dr. Fada was found out. Oh, man. And, and I understand in that case, she had gotten seven months of chemotherapy when she didn't uh, have cancer at all. Yeah, I don't remember the details of how long she got chemotherapy, but she was one of the, you know, hundreds of people that got unnecessary chemotherapy. Um, or got longer regimens of chemotherapy than were required. Yeah, uh, just an incredible story. And three of the four of those doctors you mentioned are in prison. The fourth one should be in prison. Right, He'll right. Licensed next week. The, I'm, I'm guessing you're talking about uh, Dr. Awad or Yasser Awad, who uh, the allegations. There's a class action which you're uh, leading and and uh, working on, where he is or has falsely diagnosed a number of children, hundreds of children with epilepsy. Is that right? Yeah, actually the court uh, refused to certify the class. We represent 270 kids who were uh, diagnosed with Dr. Awad as having epilepsy, treated for years in most cases for uh, seizures they didn't have with seizure medications and so forth. We've tried two of those cases to a verdict now, won both of those, and look forward to, to winning the rest if we can't get the matter resolved. Right, right, absolutely. And then the final case I just mentioned, and I'm, I'm, this guy's got to be in jail. Uh, John, Dr. John Verbowski. Uh, essentially, what I saw is that he was uh, trading uh, prescription drugs for sex. Is that right? That's correct. So, uh, yeah, you, like I said, I mean, you definitely worked on some uh, some very uh, fascinating, some very sad uh, uh, cases. But, um, but uh, you know, sounds like you've been doing great work up in Michigan. Well, we certainly try. And, um, you know, most cases are not like that. Most cases involve people who are, you know, quite honestly, dedicated healthcare providers that go to work in the morning hoping to do good for people. But through uh, one misadventure or another, usually poor decision making, 
um, not paying attention to details, commit serious acts of malpractice that cause serious morbidity and mortality in patients. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, uh, speaking of one of those cases, let's talk about the case that, that we're here to talk about. Uh, the name of the case is Yin Tran as next friend for Vin Tran uh, versus William Be- Beaumont Hospital. Uh, it was tried in 2018, sound like in the fall of 2018, in Oakland County, Michigan, which I believe, is that right outside of Detroit? It's suburban Detroit. Okay. Uh, and it, it, it involved a severe uh, brain damage and, and cerebral palsy case that was caused to, uh, to Ventran. And uh, the verdict was uh, $130.5 million. Um, and, and I do want to talk about your, uh, your verdict form because I've never quite seen a verdict form like that. But we'll, um, we'll, we'll talk about that as the show goes on. Um, Basically, the case was is that uh, that Ventran was about about two months old, and uh, he had been diagnosed with uh, hydronephrosis, which is a mild swelling of the kidneys. Uh, and because of that, he had to go get a uh, Lasix Mag three renal scan. Uh, and as part of that process, uh, they were going to run an IV line um, initially into his left hand. And then when that failed, uh, I think they were able to get it into his right ankle. But they uh, had, had a, a lot of trouble uh, getting the IV line in. Uh, and as time went on, uh, uh, young Vin uh, uh, was crying, uh, was uh, moving around and just, um, just inconsolable. Um, it, it, this is what I want to, uh, I want to talk about a little bit. It sounds like there's a, there was a couple of differing stories, but either the, um, you know, prolonged place more tr- attempts to place the IV, uh, caused, um, Vin to suffer, um, uh, essentially a cardiorespiratory arrest, uh, or that when they got it in, um, and this, uh, it sounded like the mom had, um, had witnessed something that was a little bit different than what was in the medical records. Uh, but when they had gotten it in, um, it, the blood started to back up in the, in the line. And so they um, injected something into it and either uh, whatever they injected into it or an air embolus was put in uh, and um, caused him to go into, um, into cardiac arrest. Uh, he was um, in arrest for 20 minutes, according to the records, uh, and they, it was a prolonged time to start CPR. And then when they started CPR, there's a question over whether or not they started it correctly. But the end result is that uh, young Vin was profoundly uh, brain damaged uh, for lack of blood and oxygen to the brain and, um, and suffered cerebral palsy uh, along with uh, uh, microcephaly. So um, just, uh, I, I mean, as a parent, um, it, it's a very scary case because you wouldn't think just taking your child in uh, for a, a routine scan, it would result in something like this. Um, so, uh, I mean, just a, just a very tragic case. Yeah, for sure. Um, the optics were not good for the defense, that's for sure. You know, no one expects to take their kid in for an outpatient uh, nuclear medicine scan and then have the child leave the hospital a month later with profound brain damage. Um, the case wasn't quite as simple as you're making it sound. There was no evidence of an air embolus. They, they never are, I mean. So. Yeah, <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> and uh, there was no evidence of anything untoward being put into the IV. Um, 
Interestingly, the case came to us about five days before the statute of limitations had expired. A uh, case had been languishing with a couple of other law firms for a number of years. One firm declined it. Another lawyer had the case, neglected it, didn't work it up properly. And then a uh, case found its way to our office five days before the statute. And the first question I had is, you know, what in the world happened to this baby? This was a baby who was born at term, uh, was healthy at birth, had been the pediatrician only two days before and was was looking very healthy and we couldn't understand you know what happened so we immediately set about trying to find out what happened and my first suspicion uh was as, as yours was steve that maybe there was an air embolus well that turned out not to be the case there was really no evidence of air emboli uh the neuroimaging was not consistent with that we thought perhaps something was put in the iv i still believe to this day that's a possibility but there was no proof of that um, what our experts told us was that they felt, uh, our expert neonatologist told us she felt that the painful stimuli of the IV needle sticks and the testimony of the nuclear medicine techs who placed the IV was, there were three attempts, failed in the uh, one hand, failed in one leg, and then they got a, another tech to come in and place the IV line. And after that, uh, mom reported that the techs were sort of going about their business, getting ready to do the study. They weren't really paying attention to the baby as they should be. You should keep eyes on the baby at all times. Uh, and mom finally realized her baby wasn't breathing, was turning blue. And she asked them, why is my baby turning blue? At that point, one of the nuclear medicine techs went over and took the baby's in a little papoose, which is a device to sort of hold the baby still while you're placing the IV and doing the study. And she picked the baby up, sort of looked over the baby, you know, visually, and then put the baby on her shoulder and started patting the baby in the back as if she thought that perhaps the baby was choking on something. Perhaps the baby had aspirated. She's patting the baby. And <clears throat> mom reported the baby just wasn't responding. Um, the nuclear medicine text testimony was a little bit different, that the baby was gasping and gurgling, eventually a fist clenched. Mom testified later that uh, all of a sudden a bunch of people rushed in the room. Interestingly, the mother passed out. She was admitted to the hospital herself for a couple of days. Um, the baby was, was whisked away. Uh, when the code team arrived, the baby was an asystole, meaning uh, he didn't have a heart rate, and he underwent a prolonged resuscitation. Uh, unfortunately, he was found to be severely uh, hypoxic and acidotic and had severe brain damage as a consequence of lack of adequate oxygen to his brain. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos. 
stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal technology services. uh, Give them a try. You know, Brian, one of the things, you know, a lot of times on this show, we end up talking about what happens at trial, but I'm interested in in you talking specifically about how this case came into you, um, because I think it could be useful to a lot of our listeners, some of whom are still developing their practice or thinking about developing their own practice. When a case comes into you like this, especially close to the statute, you know, what made you sort of want to take the chance? Yeah, let let me add to that because at at our firm, we normally, and there are always exceptions, obviously, but we normally don't take a medical malpractice case that's within six months of the statute. Um, And I know that, you know, uh, just because there's a lot of work to be done to work them up. So, yeah, I think that's a great question is, um, is, is what, what uh, stuck out to you about this case and, uh, and, and made you want to jump into it? Well, it's like we said right from the beginning, Steve, uh, you know, the optics didn't look good. Why does a normal, healthy baby go in for an outpatient study and come out with severe brain damage? You know, that much, that part troubled me. And certainly there was a lot of sentiment in our office to decline the case. And people hate it when I agree to look at a case with a short statute, let alone one with five days left on the statute. But, you know, the truth of our business is sometimes it's pretty easy to put an obvious case together. It doesn't take a great deal of talent. You know, um, a lot of cases are like that. But it, it, it doesn't take a great lawyer to litigate one of those to a successful conclusion. But I do think it takes a talented, dedicated lawyer to find liability in some cases where it's not immediately apparent. But nevertheless, when you scratch below the surface and really take the time to understand what happened, then you're in a position where you can prove that some preventable mistake happened. And I was just fascinated by what had happened and wanted to figure out what. And, you know, like I said, I was pretty convinced that they must have had a misadventure with the IV. I thought there may have been an air embolus. And uh, we just recently had a case against that hospital involving an air embolus, but it turned out not to be the case. Um, So the case turned out not to be um, an obvious in, in simple case, it was a difficult case in many respects, but it was a case that we really believed in. Well, uh, one thing I was wondering with it being right up against the statute in Georgia, you know, when, when you have a minor this young, I mean, g- generally you have uh, until age seven um, to bring that case. Um, is that what's what's the the statute in in Michigan like on that? Statute is age ten. And, okay. You know, this child was born in two thousand six. 
And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but something I did want to mention today, because I do a lot of birth injury cases, and I see this issue come up over and over again, especially in mock trials, where jurors always have a question, well, why are they suing now? Right. You know, why now? And you don't want to leave questions unanswered, because if you leave the questions unanswered, some juror will come in and they'll answer the question for you, usually in a way that you don't like. Right. So working with our jury consultant, we worked with Susan McPherson from the National Jury Project in Rochester, um, actually Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, fantastic uh, jury consultant. And she, you know, convinced me we had to take this on and explain to the jury why the case took so long to come up for trial. I didn't really want to, you know, part of my instincts were don't say that other lawyers didn't want your case. Because the jury will think, well, if it's such a good case, why didn't they want it? Right. But, you know, we've seen this over and over again in mock trials. If you don't give the jury a reason why it took that long to bring the case, they're going to come up with something for you. And you're not going to like it. It's because the dad got laid off recently. It's because all of a sudden they have financial problems. You know, they just make things up. So we just explained that they immediately, they immediately thought something was wrong. They sought out an attorney. The attorney was busy, didn't get to their case. And uh, they retained another attorney who was also busy and wasn't on top of it. And then finally they came to me. Yeah. And yeah. Go ahead, Steve. No, you go. <laughs> well, I, ju- I just was going to say, I- I'm so glad you brought that up. Number one, because I think as lawyers, we forget, we can forget that those things do need to be explained to a jury or that a jury is going to wonder about that. We, we focus so much on the elements of the claim or whatever and we forget about this procedural stuff that we know, like the, you know, the back of our hands that, that jurors don't understand. Right. It makes no difference to us whatsoever. Like you think that'd be the dumbest question in the world. Right. I'm seeing jurors, you know, watching jurors and mock trials get bogged down over this and it can be a very, very destructive. So I learned a long time ago, you got to answer that question up front. Yeah. Well, and I was just going to say, I mean, knowing that the statute in, in Michigan is 10 years old, I mean, so basically you were working, you took on a case that was nine years old. I mean, that's, um, that's not the easiest undertaking. I'm sure uh, a lot of witnesses claim their memories uh, were murky or had, had, had been lost. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Strangely, one of the nuclear medicine techs had some, you know, memory recall uh, between her deposition and trial. <laughs> so, often nope. is the case, you know, a lot of revisionist history is... Uh, is concocted. And, and I think ultimately that was to our benefit in the case. I, I think you were, you were about to get, uh, and tell us what you finally settled on for your, 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 um, theory. And I'm not sure we, we let our listeners know that it was, it had to do with the stimuli or the pain of the actual IV was what your expert said, right? Yeah, there's a, it turns out to be a fairly well-documented phenomenon of something called uh, breath holding spells of which there are two varieties. There are cyanotic breath-holding spells, which entail um, it's an involuntary reaction where a child will hold his or her breath. It's usually self-limited and uh, will end on its own. The child will just spontaneously resume breathing. But there are rare cases where the child doesn't resume breathing, or there can be something called a pallid breath-holding spell, which entails a cessation of cardiac activity. and some of our experts felt it was a cyanotic breath-holding spell. Another one of our experts thought it was a, a pallid breath-holding spell. 
I was surprised when we got the answers to interrogatories about the defense experts and their opinions were very similar to our experts. They also felt that it was the painful stimuli of the needle sticks that caused the breath holding spell. Um, where we parted company was they tried to portray this child as a not healthy child who was suffering from um, a severe neonatal lupus condition and severe anemia, which is why, why the child suffered an arrest. And so that's where the defense chose to fight the battle. Okay. Yeah, I, I was wondering if, if there was some, you know, since uh, I understand your, uh, your client had uh, microcephaly, that maybe they were going to try and claim that, that uh, he had had cerebral palsy uh, during birth or had already had it or something like that. No, no, he was normal cephalic at birth. You know, he had a normal head circumference when he saw his pediatrician <clears throat> as an outpatient. He was a healthy little boy. And the nature of the arrest was such that it didn't really leave any question as to what the cause of the brain damage was. It was very well documented. It was from the arrest. The questions were, was there something that was done wrong to cause the arrest, or was the baby not resuscitated in a timely fashion? And so your theory moving forward to trial was a combination of those? No, the theory really boiled down to failing to initiate a code blue and failing to give chest compressions. You know, we, we took a rules of the road approach. You know, rule number one is always you, you're never allowed to needlessly endanger patient safety. Uh, rule number two is if you see a situation where a baby's not responding appropriately, immediately call a code. And after you call the code, immediately engage in cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Check quickly the baby's airway, but then check a pulse. And if the baby doesn't have a pulse greater than 60, immediately give chest compressions. What happened in this case was the nurse took it upon her, I shouldn't say the nurse, the nuclear medicine tech took it upon herself to see if she could straighten the situation out by picking the baby up, paying the baby on the back, whereas she should have just immediately called the code blue. Should have immediately taken a, a pulse and seen that there was a problem with the heart rate at some point. And then when the baby had a bradycardia or a slow heart rate or no heart rate, give chest compressions. The, the way the record was charted, and it was interesting because they, they te the testimony of the nuclear medicine text was they don't typically even write a record documenting their establishment of an IV. But after the arrest, uh, several hours later, the head of the department asked her to write a note documenting the events of, of that morning. And <clears throat> she documented a note in which she said that uh, they started the IV, um, the baby was crying, the IV was flushed, the check patency of the IV line, baby started gasping, gurgling, arms extended, fist clenched, pale. Mom and, and Donna Dixon lifted him from Papoose. Dr. Balon entered room, called CPR team immediately. The testimony was that <clears throat> Donna, the, the senior, and, and both these were veteran nuclear medicine techs. One had, I think, 35 years experience. One had 20, 25 years experience. Donna had told the other tech, go find a doctor. And, you know, presumably it would have taken a while to find a doctor. Of course, they testified, oh, we just walked out of the room and there was a doctor standing right outside as if she were about ready to walk in the door just that instant. Right. Um, but the doctor's testimony was is that she walked in the room and she saw Donna giving rescue breaths. And Donna charted that she was giving rescue breaths 
They charted that uh, Donna continued to give rescue breaths until the CPR team arrived, which was about three, four minutes later. Of course, at trial, she suddenly claimed that she was not just giving rescue breaths, but she was giving chest compressions, something that had never been documented. And I think that's where the defense really got into trouble. And I find this so often is that defendants can't avoid the temptation to engage in a revisionist history. You know, the facts as laid out in the records of the testimony are not sufficient to bolster their defense. So they essentially make things up. Um, yeah. uh, sorry, I was just going to ask you, I'm interested to hear how you approach that, you know, because we, you see it, especially in medical malpractice cases where something's not charted, uh, you know, they're supposed to chart if it was done. Uh, but then you'll have a, a nurse or a doctor, you know, swear under oath that it, that it was done. They just didn't chart it. How do you approach that situation? Well, I try to always ask the question, do you have any independent recollection of this case separate and apart from what's in the record? And the nuclear medicine tech answered no. So I let it go at that. Um, it was a couple of years later, we're at the deposition of their expert nuclear medicine tech. And uh, I, it was actually a, yeah, it was a discovery deposition, and I asked her, you know, if Donna wasn't giving chest compressions, that would be below the standard of care, wouldn't it? And defense counsel blurted out, well, she was giving chest compressions, Brian. <laughs> and I said, you got to be kidding me. You're going to now claim, you know, years later that she was doing chest compressions. And she said, well, I know she was. So my associate, Steve Herbis, who tried the case with me, and I were talked about a lot, and we were just – on the edge of our seat during opening statement, waiting to hear whether she was going to claim that Donna Dixon had given chest compressions. And she never really addressed it. But then when she called Donna as a witness, Donna, of course, claimed that she gave chest compressions. And so it allowed me to cross-examine Donna and say, well, when your boss came to you and told you he wanted you to write an account of those events, knowing that the baby had gone into an arrest, then you knew the baby was in bad shape. Didn't you think it was important to document everything? Where does it say that you gave chest compressions? And of course, it didn't say that. Right. How much did, um, especially at the time that this was, was getting filed and you're in depositions and discovery, how much did the mom remember of what happened, um, particularly, I guess, since she had her own um, health issues during all of this? Because I, I could see it being something that's really this traumatic event that's frozen in her mind. Extremely traumatic. And one thing you should understand about these people, wonderful clients, uh, they're a Vietnamese family, uh, immigrated from Vietnam, both mom and dad well-educated, um, but there was a little bit of a language barrier and mom spoke very, very quickly. And the danger in the case was that the jury could adopt the defense narrative but this all happened very, very quickly. And if you were to just listen to the mom, because she talks so fast, mm -hmm. you, know, you would think that this just happened in a matter of a couple of moments. But we know from the physiology and, and the blood gases in this case really told the story. When the team arrived and the blood gas was drawn you know, and the, the child did not have a heart rate, the pH was 6.8 something. The base deficit was minus 20. 
and the lactic acid level was through the roof. Now that tells you this baby has not been circulating for a significant period of time. That doesn't just happen in a moment or two. Right. And those laboratory values proved our case that there was not a, an appropriate and prompt um, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So we worked really hard with our juror consultant, Susan McPherson, and the client to make sure that when she was talking about these events, you know, we took our time, we had her speak slowly so that she could be understood and that she didn't get emotionally, you know, uh, caught up in the situation and not give an accurate portrayal of what really happened. And it was difficult because it was so emotionally traumatic for her that she actually passed out and uh, was in the hospital. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, They do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate (laughs) because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and, you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. I mean, it's what a nightmare. I mean, I know it kind of it kind of goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. I just like, you know, the 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 risks, I mean, especially of cerebral palsy, which is, you know, normally something you see in a birth injury case, just the idea that she delivered this healthy baby. And then, you know, he goes in for this routine imaging and this happens is just what a, just what a nightmare. Mind blowing. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the baby was so badly brain damaged, was comatose for a number of days. And the staff from Beaumont hospital approached mom and dad and uh, mom's still in the hospital at this point. They actually approached dad and said, you know, you may wish to discontinue life support. It might be the most humane thing to do. And they said, under no circumstances, we want everything done for this child. And that was a very poignant uh, part of the trial when I explained that to the jury. And I told the jury in closing statement, you know, I really learned a lesson in love as a result of this case. 
I get emotional thinking about it even now. Um, that mother and dad knew at that point that they were taking on a lifetime of providing care to a profoundly disabled child. And they didn't think twice. They wanted everything done for this baby. They loved this baby and they're wonderful parents and they're doing a great job under difficult circumstances. But, you know, it was sad to me that the hospital was, was willing to just uh, pull the plug on the baby. And mom and dad said, absolutely not. Right. So at the time of trial, Vin was uh, 12 years old. Is that right? Uh, yeah, he was born in 2006 and the trial was 2018. So right, 12 years old. Did did you bring Vin into the courtroom, or uh, how, how did you handle that? Uh, Vin came in at the request of defense counsel for voir dire. Jury saw him, and then we showed a day in the life. Okay. Yeah. Was the why did defense want to bring him in for voir dire to see if anybody felt overly sympathetic? Yeah, that seems to be the thing here in Michigan among some defense counsel. Um, they subpoena the child for voir dire. I think they want to get everyone to say that they would feel sorry for the child and couldn't vote against it. They get anybody who has an ounce of sympathy off the jury is what right. they want to do. Um, so that, that's how that went. Um, funny little anecdote about the Day in the Life video, which was very well done. And uh, I'm somewhat embarrassed to tell you this, but I have so much faith in my associate, Steve Herbis, who, who put together the, you know, worked with the videographer to do the day in the life. I didn't look at it before trial. And I was seeing it for the first time during trial. He had told me it's great. You're going to love it. And I was busy, you know, with other things as, as you always are during trial. Right. And, uh, there was this handsome young juror on our jury, a kid who'd come up from Texas to play soccer at Notre Dame. He was a Golden Domer all the way. He had the Notre Dame logo on every day in court. Very mm -hmm. proud of his Notre Dame uh, degree. And I'm looking at this videotape, and uh, Yen, the mom, has got this T-shirt on, and it says something about Michigan and Notre Dame. What is on this T-shirt, you know? And when she's moving around the video, I see that it says, I root for two teams, Michigan and who's ever playing Notre Dame. <laughs> I said, hey, and from now on, I got to look at every video that's uh, played for trial. And I to our juror consultant about a little bit, I said, you know, when mom goes on the stand, I kind of want to make light of it, you know, and, yeah. this, and, and, and reach out to this Notre Dame uh, grad and uh, – Say, hey, we don't really hate Notre Dame, you know. So <laughs> I don't know if it's appropriate to be making a joke. But I do think, you know, that during a trial, there's some really sad times and you want to touch the jurors' hearts and minds. Sometimes it's easier, you know, if you can make them laugh a little bit too. And I think it's nice to, especially if you can have a laugh at yourself, a little self-deprecating humor or something like that. But I got on the stand and first thing I said to her was, one of the first things I said, you know, let's clear something up right now. Do you hate Notre Dame? You know? <laughs> I said, well, what's up with the T-shirt? He said, oh, I don't know. Someone just, you know, she's from Vietnam. She doesn't even know American football. Someone gave her the T-shirt. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had a good laugh about it. It was very endearing. And then we went on to talk about what we need to talk about. 
Yeah. That's great. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure relaxed her too a little bit to yeah, kind of, yeah, which was, important, you know, what yeah. about with the, um, with, did you have them in the courtroom the, the whole time? Yeah. Well, dad wasn't there every day because, um, he was looking for work, you know, and, yeah. uh, he had some things he had to do, but mom was there every day. Dad was there almost every day and, uh, very, very dedicated, loving parents. Did it, uh, did you bring out in the, with, when you had mom on the stand, the, the fact that her memory, I mean, maybe I'm getting this wrong, but was her memory of what happened a little different than what was reflected in the medical records? Yeah, there were some differences, you know, um, but the way to handle that situation is, you know, the proof is in the pudding of the blood gases right. and result. You know, the defense narrative was, oh, they had eyes on the baby at all times. As soon as there was a problem with the baby, they immediately called the code. The code team immediately came in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They immediately gave CPR. Well, if that all happened like that, this baby wouldn't have brain damage. This baby wouldn't have a pH down the sixes. This right. baby wouldn't have a base depth of the minus 20. One of the ER doctors who responded to the code was a fellow that testifies quite often as a defense expert, as it turns out, in Michigan. Guy I encountered many times before, a frequent flyer defense expert. His testimony was, I was right across the hall. It was like 15 feet away. I was there almost instantaneously. I was there within a second or two. You know, and so Stephen and I decided we were over there for a deposition one day. We would walk down and see where the nuclear medicine suite was in relation to the um, emergency room. And it turns out it's a good long ways, you know? I mean, it wasn't a half a mile, but it was probably 170 yards. Right. And this guy's testifying. It's right across the hall, 15 feet away. So we subpoenaed the blueprints. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the hospital representative had to come and hold those blueprints up to the jury. These blueprints, of course, are massive. And it looked like it was about two miles long. But little points like that, I think, are extremely important. When yeah. someone exaggerates and says that they got there in a second or two from 15 feet away, when it's more like, you know, 170 feet, those things are important. I, I really love that because that's we talk about the importance of doing scene inspections and going to a place where something happens yourself. But I think people frequently don't do that in a medical malpractice case. And yeah, they, that they was clearly do. significant. They should do it better than we did it because because we just did it the unannounced spur of the moment. And we walked down the nuclear medicine suite and the door was kind of open. So we walked in and we walked in and who was there? Donna Dixon. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Help me jump with something. You know, it's okay. And uh, <laughs> did you get a call from defense counsel right after that? We, we actually did. And they, they brought the court's attention and we said, well, we're not playing more site inspections. So don't worry about it. <laughs> 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 um, well, it sounds like, uh, well, one thing I wanted to bring up before we get into, you know, how you prepared for trial, but, it, um, there was a notation in the medical records that, uh, that the, uh, uh, that Vin had been in, in, uh, asystolic arrest for 20 minutes, right? Well, it was a good long while. Um, and that was a direct reflection of the fact that he was so metabolically deranged by the time the code team got there. You see, once the baby's not circulating and they've gone into metabolic acidosis and the acid's accumulating within the tissues of the heart, the heart's that much harder to get started. Right. You know, if there's just a very brief period of a cessation of cardiac activity and immediate performance of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, baby should be easy to turn around. 
but this baby was very difficult to turn around. Right. And of course, there was a whole battle, which we haven't talked about yet, which is where the defendant were really um, hanging their hat, which is that the child, the notion this was not a healthy child, but rather the child was very sick and suffering from anemia, from neonatal lupus, which we felt was not true. Yeah, talk about that. I mean, I, I want to hear, you know, in a case like this, uh, and we've talked about a lot of uh, complex medical malpractice cases, but this sounds like a, a fairly complex case and there's a lot of complex issues to explain to the jury. I mean, how do you approach that to, uh, you know, essentially simplify it to, you know, where a, a jury can understand it? But I, I do want to hear about the, um, the defense that they tried and how you, how you uh, address that as well. Okay. Well, it turned out that um, Vin had been diagnosed as having neonatal lupus. Now, neonatal lupus is, is a misnomer. It doesn't mean that a child has lupus. It means that they've been exposed to antibodies. The mother had lupus, not knowing she had lupus, had no clinical symptoms. And this is, you know, it happens every once in a while with newborns. It's something called neonatal lupus. The usual manifestation is a skin rash. And Vin had a little bit of a skin rash. He had gone to the University of Michigan where they took a biopsy. They confirmed the diagnosis of neonatal lupus. <clears throat> they did a, a heart workup because the neonatal lupus can affect the heart. And the heart was normal. He was given a clean bill of health from a cardiac standpoint, which didn't stop the defendants from claiming that uh, the neonatal lupus could have precipitated the cardiac arrhythmia. And there was really no support for that. We went out to Ann Arbor during trial, took a deposition of the attending cardiologist, and she completely shot that out of the water. The other thing was that during the code, a hemoglobin level was drawn, and it was really low. It was like four. A normal hemoglobin in, in a, a, at two months of age, the hemoglobin is actually going down a little bit. But a normal hemoglobin is probably somewhere in the ballpark of 11 to 16. Vins was four but a repeat hemoglobin was about 6.9. So our experts and even some of the defense experts admitted that this first level of four was a spurious value, probably due to laboratory error, a sampling error. 6.9 was probably a legitimate value. Uh, and the defense said, well, that showed the child had such poor oxygen carrying capability that he couldn't uh, circulate adequate amounts of oxygen to his brain. And that simply isn't true. Uh, hemoglobin of 6.9, um, first of all, is it should be adequate to carry adequate amounts of oxygen to your brain if you're circulating normally. And I'm a big believer in preparation. And we had done, you know, very, very thorough searches. I've got a very hardworking team, paralegals and assistants, who dug up depositions of the defense experts. And lo and behold, we found deposition right on point where the defense experts said, with a hemoglobin of that, you should be able to carry adequate amounts of blood, uh, oxygen, I should say, to your brain. So we shot that out of the water. The other thing was that, the truth be told, the Beaumont Hospital hematologist who consulted on the case said that the anemia was due to DIC as a consequence of the arrest. Right. Because of the arrest, not before the arrest. Vin had actually had a hemoglobin drawn at a well baby visit about six weeks earlier and was perfectly stone cold normal. If he had had a hemoglobin of four before the procedure, he would have been pale, he would have been lethargic, he would have been acting abnormally, and he was acting perfectly normal. It would be extraordinarily unusual for a child to have neonatal lupus, not have uh, 
have skin manifestations, which he did, not have any hematologic manifestations, and then have hematologic manifestations later at eight weeks, and then have those hematologic manifestations go away. So we were able to show he didn't have any anemia before, he didn't have any anemia later. The Beaumont doctors ascribed the anemia that he had during the code to the code itself and to the arrest. So, you know, they set up these bogus defenses and we shot them all down, you know, one by one. Uh, Yvonne, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are. Oh man, we are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers. We're trial. Yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens? When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial. That's right. When you close the case, as uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right, so if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access Case Pacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from any time, anywhere. We encourage our listeners to check out CasePacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's CasePacer.com. And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. You've mentioned that you worked with the trial consultant a couple of times. Talk about, you know, your preparation, working the case up. Did you uh, focus group the case and, and, and what did you, uh, what were you able to learn from that? Uh, well, it underscored our belief in our case, you know, uh, because the mock trials went really well. Uh, you know, jurors had no problems finding liability. And, it, you know, it always helps you fine tune your message a little bit. I think by the time we got to the mock trial, we had a pretty good idea of what our case was about. And it um, it's not like we had to retool, reinvent the wheel. It told us we're on the right track and we had a case that we had good reason to believe in. Yeah. You know, uh, does it ever, uh, whenever I have a mock trial that goes really well and I, you know, they'll, they'll give me a big number, you know, everybody seems to be on our side. It, it always scares me a little bit that I might be missing something that the, the defense is going to do. Uh, do you ever have that worry in this case? Well, I always have that worry. And 
we do our level best to make sure that we're representing the defense at least as well, if not better, than they're going to be represented at trial. Right. There are a number of things we do to sort of level the playing field, so to speak, make sure we're not taking unfair advantage. Uh, you know, we, we try to give the defense plenty of firepower and uh, really give them a chance to vet the, the full defense and play it out so that we don't want to smoke uh, you know, blowing up our skirt about how good our case is if it's not that good. That's right. not the purpose of a mock trial. purpose of a mock trial is to try and find any weaknesses and shore those up. Yeah, and then talk about your uh, what the the um, the jury looked like with the makeup was and what you were uh, aiming for during a jury selection. Uh, is Oakland County, what, how, how does that, um, you know, between it, it probably – Probably leans liberal, I'm guessing, but I don't know. What, uh... No, it, it leans conservative. Okay. Um, I think that, that we have probably some swing voters. We, we had a Republican uh, congressman here, but last election they went with a Democrat. Um, it's an affluent, you know, predominantly white community. Um, we had a very, very well-educated jury, probably the most well-educated jury that I've ever had. Several, a couple people had graduate degrees. Almost everybody had a college degree. Um, we had a lot of healthcare providers that were on the panel that had to be uh, vetted and that, that uh, you know, wound up not sitting on the jury. Um, it was a very difficult jury selection, but we got a, a jury of intelligent people. And I think that was to our advantage. I mean, in a case like this, you want smart people who can understand the medicine and see through the defenses the defendants are trying to raise. Right. We talk about that a lot on this show. I think it's something I didn't realize. I didn't realize after law school. I didn't realize when I was clerking. I mean, it wasn't until I started, you know, preparing cases for trial that I realized that confusion worked in the favor of the defense, you know, like I, yeah. um, but, and, but, you know, but that's what we see just like the, when I first got started and I'd be reading these depositions in medical malpractice cases or, or trying to get the lay of the land, I would be so confused as to why certain questions were asked in depositions or why certain things were being spent so much time on in depositions. And then, you know, my bosses explained to me, like, yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> well, you know, Rick Friedman said it well in his book, Rules of the Road. You know, they call it the three horsemen of defeat, confusion, complexity, and ambiguity. And those are not your friends. Those are the reasons why plaintiff lawyers lose good cases sometimes. So you That's have right. to eliminate those three things. Yeah, absolutely. And then, um, and then I wanted to give you a chance to talk about, I mean, this sounds like this case was pretty heavy in, in the use of experts. Uh, and, and then obviously you, you've got a lot of medical personnel that are um, uh, witnesses. Uh, uh, how, how do you approach that as far as, you know, making sure that you're getting your message through to the jury? Well, there's a certain amount of teaching that starts with opening statement, and then you underscore that with all of your expert witnesses. I think it was very important for jurors to understand blood gases. Um, I think it was important for them to understand the basics of neonatal lupus and to see that this was just a completely bogus defense that was, that was made up. I mean, you know, they have the defense counsel insinuating that there was something wrong with the baby's heart. When the treating cardiologist said that the child's heart was perfectly normal. He had the defense expert, uh, the defense attorney, I should say, insinuating that um, 
this child may have had an infection whereas there was no evidence of infection you know there was one blood culture that was positive well when a child has a very severe hypoxic ischemic insult a lot of times you get translocation of bacteria through the gut wall and you get a positive blood culture but it was just one positive culture uh, the culture was repeating was negative. Nobody ever diagnosed a child having an infection. Um, their hematologist said that the anemia was because of the arrest, not a cause of the arrest. So you just, you know, you, you take all these defenses, you knock them down one by one, and you just use logic, common sense, and, and good sound, you know, medical logic. Yeah. Uh, did you get a chance to talk to the jurors afterwards? Is, is that allowed in Michigan? We did. Yeah, we, we usually do. And uh, the judge spent a lot of time with the jurors and then invited us back and then eventually invited defense counsel back. And uh, it's always really fun to talk to those people. You know, they, they really worked hard in the case. They uh, deliberated very diligently. Uh, it took their role very seriously. And I think they did the right thing. Yeah, it's really annoying. I mean, in Georgia, where uh, you know everything sort of got thrown off because of uh, the coronavirus, but we were facing some pretty heavy uh, tort reform arguments about so-called nuclear verdicts and things like that. And it's it's annoying when you know they all they do is they they throw up cases and numbers without ever talking about the facts, and and certainly never talking to the jurors because anytime you talk to a juror, I, every juror I've had. They, they always tried to do the right thing. They always worked hard to do the right thing. Uh, and I've never, I, I've never talked to a, a juror where I, I got the feeling like, well, they were just, you know, uh, phoning it in or they weren't really trying. Every, every single one of them takes an interest in the case and, and at least, you know, tries to do the right thing. We may not always agree, but, uh, but they're, you know, their heart is in the right place. Absolutely. And the four person was married to a physician. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, so related to the jury's verdict, the, the form of the verdict, as Steve mentioned early on, um, was really interesting to us. Um, obviously it was a great result for you, but, but, you know, so it split it out amount of money per year. They had to fill out the amount each for each year for for, for each claim. So like for future medical expenses and healthcare every year, and then for future pain and suffering every year, I've, I've never see anything about that. So, I mean, I, I do want you to talk a little bit about how you put together your damages case, but then how you address this, uh, this verdict in, um, in your closing argument. Well, um, it's mandated by statute in Michigan. That's the standard form. And the jury does have to go through year by year and determine an amount of money to compensate plaintiff for the various elements of damage, which included loss of wage earning capacity and loss of, uh, you know, uh, uh, medical expenses, re- rehab expenses, so on and so forth. And uh, the jury's then tasked with the responsibility of determining how long the child is likely to live. Um, and they did that. I think they, they found a, a slightly shortened life expectancy, but not uh, severely limited, I don't believe. And um, then the judge um, takes that and, and, uh, we lost uh, some money because of uh, caps on non-economic damages. We lost a lot because of reduction of present cash value. But the judge eventually boils it down and enters a judgment. Got it. So when you're t- when you're arguing to the jury, or or even when you know if you if you're putting up your life care planner or your economist to talk about um, to talk about the money involved in 
that's going to be needed for the care of someone like this. Do you, do you end up talking about it per year? Do you end up, are you allowed to suggest specific dollar amounts? You know, how do you handle that with the jury? No, we are allowed to suggest specific dollar amounts. Um, I, all those numbers on the verdict form were mostly taken, I think, from our economist report. And um, the, the defendants called their economist. Their economist had uh, his say so about what he thought the economic damages were. Um, and the jurors understand that the judge takes those numbers and reduces them to present cash value. Okay, so the jury's told basically that that, that the judge will be doing that part of it. Correct. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and then defense counsel, in my opinion, you know, sort of played a dirty trick and tried to get the jury to put in numbers that were already reduced to PCV. So they'd get double reduced, which allowed me to get up on rebuttal and really you know, rake her over the coals for, for suggesting something like that that would wind up if, if they fell for that and the child being grossly undercompensated. Right, right. So did you say that there, there are uh, caps on non-economic uh, damages? Yeah, unfortunately in Michigan, we have a cap on non-economic damages, um, which is, it goes up and down with inflation. It's roughly $850,000 for profound brain damage. For most cases, it's 470 or thereabouts unless you've got spinal cord injury or uh, profound brain damage. So the, num- so the numbers we see here for pain and suffering are basically capped at eight, 850. Correct. Okay. And then the, the, the largest part of the verdict it was the future uh, care uh, for the child. If I, I, I didn't, um, I, I didn't try and, you know, go through line by line and add it up, but it looked like it was a little bit over a hundred million. Yep, it added up because yeah. this, this child, you know, is going to have uh, many, many years of life yeah. because he's got a dedicated mom and dad who are taking great care of him. The um, you mentioned that they um, on the shortened life expectancy. Did the defense come in with a, an expert to say that his uh, life expectancy was going to be shortened? Yeah, we didn't see a doctor Chevelle, but uh, or, or someone of that ilk. But you know, they they certainly. Uh, broach the subject of decreased life expectancy. Yeah. Okay. And just and just uh, did it more by argument than putting on a witness. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that one of their witnesses. I just I, I don't remember specifically who tried to carry the water for them on that issue. I always love it when they do it because you know it can become a self fulfilling prophecy. Right. I mean, right. I always tell a jury, and I ask the defense experts on cross examination. You know, isn't it true that there are no problems that can befall a child with cerebral palsy? For example, you know, aspiration, infection, you know, joint contractures, the risk of which are not greatly reduced by intensive physical occupational therapy. And the truthful answer to that is, yeah, I mean, these things are all risks, but they're risks that can be mitigated. That's exactly why you need a good life care plan. Right. And so if the jury's interested in trying to be fair and not see that the child, you know, has a short life expectancy, it becomes important that they fill out that verdict form to give you all the money that child needs to get the services he needs. So that does not happen. Wow. It just, in thinking about this and especially in thinking about the care that he needed and ultimately that the jury awarded to him, it it had to have been a huge strain on these parents, especially if at that point, um, his father's looking for work around when the case goes to trial for them to care for him 
on their own. Yeah, and mom had, you know, uh, left her career plans on the sideline while she became a full-time care provider. She was basically running a physical occupational therapy clinic in her home. And one of the most um, devoted care providers I've ever seen. Just really wow. a wonderful person. Yeah. And so now I'm hoping, you know, they get out of their lives and uh, then gets well taken care of. And I think that he is being well taken care of. Thank God. Yeah. Good. It, so, yeah. So the case has been resolved, or uh, it has. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, fantastic. And that's that, that's great to hear for the family, and for uh, and for Vin. Yeah. I mean, um, happy ending. You know, and a very well deserving family. And uh, the case came in under some pretty uh, trying circumstances, under less than ideal circumstances, but through some hard work and pers- perseverance and a willingness to just you know, stand up and be counted and throw your hat in the ring and try and go to bat for this family, it paid off. You know, and I'm glad we didn't say no. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to say, you know what, we don't have enough time, five days, we're, we're buying into trouble. That was the instinct that a lot of people in the office had. But I just saw something here that I thought, you know, we can't just let them down. If we don't help them, who's going to? Right. Right. I mean, they, it's so uh, great that they found you and, and, uh, I assume they realized how close they came to uh, basically recovering nothing for uh, for these catastrophic injuries. Yes. Um, we in you know, one thing I wanted to ask in in Georgia, if you get a case within um, what is it about ninety days of the statute, um, you can you can essentially ask for an extra ninety days to get your expert affidavits in. Is there any sort of provision like that in Michigan? Well, there is. It's something that you know, we don't ever bank on, I mean, because it's, it's not like the judge has to do it. it, has to be good cause shown. So, you know, we don't mess around with that. Right. So you were able to do that in that, in that basically in that five days, get an expert, expert affidavit together. And, and the judge initially threw the case out because the notice of intent, which is a statutory prerequisite, which was done by the previous attorney was so grossly deficient. Yeah. That we were able to refile it and resurrect this case. I mean, it was, it was, uh, on life support when it came to our door. Yeah. Wow. How lucky the family found you. And I mean, just in time that just, yeah. And we feel lucky too, you know, honestly that, uh, they found us and I was, was really happy that we were able to help them because it was a family that needed help and a family that deserved help. And this, at the end of the day was a preventable tragedy. Absolutely. So, Brian, this has been just a great uh, talk and a, a great interview. I just want to make sure, is there anything that you want to make sure our listeners know about this case that we haven't had the chance to talk about yet? No, I think we covered the most important aspects of it. Um, I think the key is just understanding what happened and yeah. then proving how a different ending could have easily happened. It should have happened. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, because if you think about it, not only do you not expect to go in for a a routine test and and have your child come out brain damaged, but if something goes wrong during a routine test, what better place to be than a hospital? And, uh, and they just fell down on the job. Yeah. And I guess it was important too. you know, one thing I I should have mentioned, it was really important. We learned this from the mock trial that the jury had to understand these nuclear medicine techs, and there are no doctors involved. There are no nurses involved. It was strictly a case against the techs. But the jury had to understand, they're trained medical professionals. They're trained, required to have CPR. And therefore, when the 
CPR is needed, you have to do it. You have to do it promptly. You have to do it correctly in the right sequence. And CPR is ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. You've got to give circulation. And giving rest yeah. without cardiac compressions is not getting the oxygen to where it needs to go, which is to the to the brain. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, I want to remind everybody that we've been uh, talking about the case of Tran versus uh, William Beaumont Hospital, uh, which was tried in September of 2018 and resulted in a, uh, a $130.5 million verdict for Vin Tran. And, uh, and we've been talking to Brian McKean, uh, senior uh, and founding partner of McKean and Associates. And you can look up Brian uh, at McKean, that's M-C-K-E-E-N, associates.com. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for your time. Steve, my pleasure. Ron, enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast. And we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.